you have any plans today? Are you going to climb any mountains? <laughs> I'm not climbing mountains. I'm just getting ready to. I leave on Saturday for two and a half months in Nepal. So my wow. plan involves a lot of packing. <laughs> Hi there, welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben speaking, your host. Thanks for joining me today on another episode. You were just listening to Melissa Arnott, today's guest. And if you think that two and a half months in Nepal is impressive, just wait till you hear this episode. We're going to talk to Melissa about her career as a professional climber and also some heavy topics, some motivating topics, some inspiring topics. And if you like stuff like this, Check us out on iTunes. Go to the search bar, type in MTN Meister. You can subscribe to our podcast for free. This is our 74th episode. So if you're new to this podcast, check out what we have. Okay, let's get started. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. Today, we welcome Melissa Arnott. Melissa has summited Mount Rainier over 100 times, and she has summited Mount Everest not once, not twice, not three or four times, but five times. That is the most out of any non-Sherpa female climber in this universe. So Melissa has summited Everest five times. Melissa, that is five times more than me. <laughs> you are a mountain meister in every sense of the word. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Honestly, like when you first hear about all of these accomplishments, and obviously you're very well known in the climbing community, but uh, some of our listeners may not have heard of you before. You, Some of them might think, you know, Melissa's this old, wise, legendary mountaineer, and <laughs> the wise and legendary parts are probably correct, but not the old. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. If any of the listeners are worried about their age, stop listening for the next five seconds. Melissa, you're 30 30 years old. When did you start climbing? I mean, how'd you get all this stuff done? Yeah, you know, most people when they first meet me, they kind of look around and they're like, where's the mountaineer? And I have to say, oh, that's me. And they think, oh, I must be the mountaineer's daughter or something. <laughs> and um, yeah, I didn't actually start climbing until I was about 19. And so that's another thing that usually surprises people. They think I must have been doing this since I was two years old, but that's not the case at all. So are you some sort of like fitness freak? I mean, you started at 19. <laughs> yeah, you know, I did start at 19. And actually, for me, I found something in the activity of climbing and mountaineering that I felt like was not dependent on your age and really not dependent on any sort of natural athleticism. I'm not naturally super athletic. Um, I am very driven and I'm very persistent. And those things come in handy more than anything. But it doesn't really have to do with um, this really high level of, of physicality. And so it's been sort of an evolution for me to get to know my body 
and know my body at those extreme environments. Yeah, yeah. You've done an unbelievable number of mountains. Here's an interesting stat that you've probably never heard before. And for some reason, I took a few minutes calculating. So I took the cumulative vert of all of your notable summits. um, And I calculated that you're about a quarter of 1% on your way to the moon. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, congratulations on that. And that's not even including all the down climbing or the training that you're doing. So you might be at a few percentage points uh, on your way to the moon. So congratulations on that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? No, I have never heard that. I generally um, shy away from math, so I'll do anything okay. pretty much, but not math. <laughs> uh, throw it on your credentials. It's pretty impressive. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, so let's go, let's go straight to Everest um, because I'm sure that's what everybody's wondering about. And we've talked a little bit about Everest on the show before. We've also talked about lo- lots of other mountains. I guess to start off, why is Everest different? What does Everest teach you versus other mountains, even 8,000 meter peaks? You know, Everest is such a special mountain in the world. Even if you don't know anything about climbing, you probably know what Mount Everest is or kind of generally a little bit about it. And um, so it's, it's really unique in that way. But it's also this this representation of, you know, the, the pinnacle, if you will, of something in our world. And there's not very many things that we have access to as just average everyday people that are like the most, the pinnacle. And I always think about it in relation to sports. You know, if you play tennis, you can't necessarily play the best tennis player in the world or get to that highest level competition just because you want to. But if you are interested in mountaineering, you know, that becomes accessible to you. And so I think Everest sort of holds this really special um, and, and captive audience And, you know, when you get to Everest and you see this place, I have no words to explain what it really is. It's so special and so extraordinary. And it's just it's just magic. Hmm. Somebody I just spoke to the other day said that, you know, you hear the people say that you see the curvature of the earth at the top of Everest. And I've actually never heard somebody say that before. Is that true? Yeah, you know, on the summit, on a clear day, you could look out and you can see all the way into China and way out into Nepal and you're above the thunderstorms and it's just a really cool experience. You're above the thunderstorms. Yeah, you know, it's the monsoon time typically is coming when we summit. And so there's thunderstorms in the cities and that's, you know, maybe 100 miles away from us you can see the electricity brewing below you, which is very, very unique. Wow. Yeah, that is very interesting. Out of those five summits, which has been the most rewarding? Can you pick one? Oh, geez. Um, (laughs) I'd say, you know, it's always so different. And and I think a little bit of why you go back is you forget (laughs) Mm. what it was like. And so that maybe motivates you to go back. Really? um, Wait, you forget? Yeah, I think so, a little bit. Because it's kind of like anything in life. You know, you forget all the all the difficulties. (laughs) I think if you ask me, like right when I came down from the summit, on any given year, how do you feel about having summited? I would have probably said something like, nah, mm. it was okay. I don't need to go back though. <laughs> but then as time moves on, you sort of forget that. And um, I, I think, you know, the most special summits for me, the two, the two seasons that really have stood out for me were 2010 and then um, 2013 last year. And both of those had to do with the people that I summited with and feeling this really amazing sense of support and collaboration with my partner. Uh, Each of those years, I was climbing with a climbing partner, just one person, and um, we had done it together and we were really supportive of each other. And that just felt fantastic. You know, it just felt like 
doing it and being in the mountains for all the right reasons. I've heard that from other people before, too. It's about the people that you summit with. You Mm -hmm. bring up an interesting point about not remembering the bad things, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think is, I think there's some human behavior elements in there because I think that we do tend to remember the highlights and choose to forget the, the bad things. Do you think that's true with your mountaineering? Oh, definitely. I mean, if I remembered all of the exact way that I felt, um, you know, when I was my coldest or physically the most challenged or you probably wouldn't go back. (laughs) No, you you wouldn't. I mean, unless you really were trying to punish yourself. It's just, um, you know, I, I think it's it's one of those great things about our human nature that when we're suffering, it feels so terrible. It feels I mean, any kind of suffering, too. It doesn't have to be physical, even just an emotional type suffering. It feels so bad. It feels so all-encompassing, and you just want it to be done. And there's always this sense when it's done that you've accomplished something, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you've, that you've gotten through it, and you're on the other side, and you can look back at it. And it's one of those really amazing, I think, unique human qualities that we all share, and it, it can apply in any, any sort of circumstance where there's discomfort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good point there. I guess it's reasons why expressions like the good old days exist and things like that. Melissa, we've spoken to people who have been oh so close to the summit of Everest. We spoke to John Kudrowski in episode number 64 for our listeners, if you'd like to check that out. He was 800 feet from the summit. We also spoke to Tim Medvets from the Heroes Project. He was 300 feet from the summit. Oh, so close. That is episode number 73, if you'd like to check out that. Melissa, have you ever been close to turning away? Oh, definitely. My first year there was in 2008, and it was the year that um, the Chinese were trying to carry the Olympic torch to the summit because the Olympics was in Beijing. And so they put all of these restrictions. I wasn't climbing in China. I was climbing in Nepal, but they had imposed all these restrictions on when and how we could climb. And by the eventual summit day, it was so crowded. And in fact, it was the most crowded I've ever experienced Everest was my first expedition in 2008 and everybody was kind of scrunched into these very few days of climbing and it was so slow on summit day that we multiple times stopped and sort of assessed our situation and decided you know are we going to continue or are we going to turn around and I really didn't believe we were going to summit until we actually did and so it was quite an emotional roller coaster the entire day and I had 65 days of work preceding that just to get up to that sort of emotionally vexed day. Uh, does it, uh, you mentioned all the people up there, does it make Everest any less special when you see all those people up there? No, you know what I think is, is great is that, um, you know, I, I, it's something we can all experience. I just don't think it would be right of me to say, oh, I found something so extraordinary and so special mm-hmm. and it provides so much for my soul, but none of you should be allowed to go see it too. I just think that's such an arrogant standpoint. Um, and, you know, I think, do we want to overuse it? Do we want to abuse it? Absolutely not. We want to be responsible. And, and that's my, my wish to anybody who would want to go to Everest is, you know, do it in the most responsible and ethical way you can, which means prepare yourself the best that you can so that you become a good member of the community and not a burden on the community. And if everybody did that, you know, the numbers aren't, I'm not so concerned about the numbers as long as we're all being gentle and, and being responsible. I think that's what's more important. I think that's true in, in life, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's go, we go back to 
being oh so close mm-hmm. to the summit. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of variables that come into play when you do this thing. Like, do you think that or have your legitimate summits? How much of that comes down to luck? Oh, so much. You know, I always tell people that that it's huge. It's an enormous amount of luck because not only do you have to be physically prepared and mentally committed, you have to have good weather. You have to have good health. You have to have a day which um, you don't have any sort of personal emergency and you don't get ensnared in anybody else's personal emergency. And then it just kind of has to all come together in this one little moment. And preceding that one moment, again, is 65 days of you know potential for bad luck <laughs> mm. where you can twist an ankle. You can get a sort of sickness that you can't recover from. Um, you know, You can just miss the weather window. It's just there's so much that goes into it. And I think... You know, the best thing, I've been extraordinarily lucky. You know, I've been on Everest seven seasons, and I've been lucky enough to summit on five of those. And that's so lucky, and it could have always gone a different way. And I just try to remember that and keep my attitude really good and also be very open to uh, my success not being tied up in getting to the summit. Mm -hmm. You know, having my success tied up in what I'm learning rather than where I'm going. Because if that's all I'm trying to do is stand on the top, you know, this, that's a lot of um, effort yeah. <laughs> to just get that one little thing out of it. And that's, that's not what I'm in it for at all. Right, right. Well, so, I mean, I agree with you on the lucky part. But also, if you look at the sample size, the more and more that you do Everest, the less and less it looks like luck when you summit, right? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think knowledge and experience goes a long way uh-huh. and you can make good decisions. And, you know, I always I always say I'm like, I'm pretty cagey on Everest. I kind of I can move fast. I always stay as part of a small team so I don't get um, stuck in any situations that I don't want to be in. And uh, I guess that's definitely experience, you know, but I've had good luck to be able to get that experience. Definitely, definitely. In the past, you've attempted to climb Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. That's correct, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, uh, I mean, listen, I have trouble relating to people who climb Mount Everest, and now I'm going to try to ask you a question about doing it without oxygen. So <laughs> take it easy on me. But, but, like, why even try Everest without oxygen? Well, for me, Everest has become such a an interesting partner to challenge myself with. And I'm always interested in learning more about myself in every way and trying to kind of be better. And that's, a, that's just sort of a facet of it. It's, you know, can I survive and persevere and achieve this without the assistance of supplemental oxygen? Can I do this in a really pure way? And I don't, I absolutely don't judge anybody else who climbs in any style, actually, to be totally honest with you. If, if people want to take medicine to aid themselves to get to the summit, or they want to hire five guides, or they don't want to carry any of their stuff, I don't really care about that. That's, that's fine. It's everyone's own personal choice, as long as they're very honest about how they're doing it. And for me, I am just very interested in seeing if I can strip away all of those measures of aid and still have some measure of success. Mm -hmm. And that's just a very, very intriguing process. And it's just getting to know my physiology and sort of my mentality. You know, can I can I sustain that sort of discomfort in that environment? And where's the line of safety versus, you know, just pushing on through discomfort. Right, yeah, that seems like it's kind of difficult to discover that. Like, uh, capitalizing on the most reward uh, for the risk that you're taking. 
Yeah, and I think all of the seasons that I've spent on Everest, I've gotten to understand what normal feels like for me. And so I have this amazing toolbox to just open up and look inside and see like, where am I right now? You know, am I starting to suffer? Is this is this normal suffering or is this abnormal suffering? And I just think that's such a gift. And so I'd love to try to use it to challenge myself in that way. And it's a very, very personal endeavor, I have to say. Like, nobody else really cares if I climb without oxygen or not. It's definitely something that I am interested in pushing myself with. Your parents probably care. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I don't don't know. (laughs) So, uh, and how many people have summited Everest without oxygen? Oh, just a small handful. I'm not sure the exact number even. Um, Probably less than 50. And you would be the first woman? Not the first woman, but the first American woman, yeah. The first American woman. Yeah. All right, interesting. So for our listeners who are familiar with this, there has been a lot of news about the tension on Everest, mainly between Western climbers and native Sherpas and some other things. There was a fight that broke out. It's a really interesting time right now. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of people out there that cover this who are much more knowledgeable than I am. If you're interested in it, just Google it. We're not going to talk about it today. I do, Melissa, want to talk about what you're doing with the Juniper Fund. So please tell our listeners about that. Yeah. So in 2010, I was climbing in Nepal and I'd been guiding and then I finished my my work and I had a um, a friend of mine who was a, a local Sherpa and also interested in climbing another peak. We both had a little bit of free time. Our trips had ended. And so we went to go climb a peak called Barunse, which is a 7,000-meter peak near Everest. And on that trip, he died. Um, he, he died in an ice fall accident. And I, it was just the two of us together, and I was faced with so much. I mean, I was faced with the reality of the death of my friend and dealing with that in a country that I don't speak the native language and just uh, so much. I mean, you can't imagine all of the things that immediately happened. And one of the most horrifying parts for me was to go to his wife and his two sons and to tell them that their father wasn't coming home and that her husband wasn't coming home. And in Nepal, the Sherpa workers, the Sherpa are a tribe of people. And um, there's other there's other mountain workers beyond just the Sherpa tribe. So we'll call them high altitude workers. You know, they're protected through a couple different measures. The government has an insurance program that when you hire somebody to work with you, they receive insurance payment. It's very inadequate. It's mm-hmm. not enough for a family. It's, you know, for a, a worker who's an Everest employee, it's about one year salary in most cases. And so you can imagine just with the, the weight of um, grief and everything, one year of salary isn't enough to support that family. And in most cases, the males are the ones bringing home all the income. And so I identified that there was a need to you know, be more responsible. I was really embarrassed and ashamed in a lot of ways that I was um, working in this environment and traveling and hiring staff. And I had no real sense of how I was protecting them if an accident happened. And I was choosing to be there as a choice, as my activity and my adventure. And, and so was my partner that day, just to be clear. He was my friend. We were climbing together that day. But, you know, it's there's less choices for livelihood. And if I am going to hire local staff in any place, really, I want to know that I'm being very responsible. So my climbing partner, David Morton, and I started the Juniper Fund to help provide additional supplementary benefit to families after the death of a high-altitude worker. Was there a time, I mean, God, that must have been so traumatic that you wanted to kind of rebel or turn away from climbing? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think right after the accident, I was just in an absolutely crazy mental place where I couldn't really understand what I was doing and what the point was. And at the same time, I mean, you really have to keep in mind, though I love climbing, it's also how I make my living. (laughs) You know, it's my job. It's how I pay my bills. And so it seems so simplistic to just say, oh, you know, after something so horrific, why not just quit? Why not stop doing that? It's so dangerous. Well, there's a practical aspect too. It's how I've made my job. It's how I, it's how I support myself. And I could definitely do something else, but that would be a big change. That'd be a really big change. And so I feel like there was that time and I sort of worked through it and I thought mostly I can't help anybody else if I quit doing this. I can't support um, his family at all if I don't have income from working in the mountains. And I got to a place where I, I felt like, you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take, but I need to conduct myself more responsibly in terms of knowing who I'm ensnaring in my adventures. And then I think the next time that I really thought about quitting was a couple years later when I went to visit his widow and sons and, and I visit them every year, but I walked away from her house and I just, I had to like sit down on the trail and I thought, you know, I can't do this. I cannot face the grief in the face of somebody who's lost this much. It's not worth it. And, you know, I, I sort of picked myself up and kept walking away and got further from that situation and closer to the mountains and it starts to balance back out. But, you know, grief will, will make you reconsider everything in your life for sure. Mm. Wow. You looked at it very logically at the beginning, like just saying like, you know, this is your job and your income, but there's just so many emotional levels to it. Yeah, very hard. For our fans, you can check out the Juniper Fund. We'll put that on Melissa's Meister profile page. To switch gears, we like to ask all of our guests for a gear recommendation, Melissa. And I've looked at some pictures of you and you're basically wearing a different color puffy Everest suit or down jacket in every picture that I see. So I can't even imagine how much stuff you have. Like, do you, do you have a storage unit or something? Like you, you (laughs) you must have so many things. Yeah. You know, I actually, I do because I've been lucky enough to work with Eddie Bauer and the first ascent team since it started in 2009. And we actually build (laughs) the, the guides get to build all of the outerwear and clothing. So I have a direct say in everything about all of the outerwear that you see me in and so i'm so extraordinarily lucky in that way that sounds like a supplemental form of income for you you could just retail that on ebay (laughs) i don't you know i actually donated away (laughs) so i don't even have a storage unit i just have if there's any extra small girls that's (laughs) that's what size i am you can do a meister giveaway for our fans some used melissa arnott clothing that might actually go for more expensive than the retail price it just might (laughs) (laughs) but anyway Anyway, let's let's hear a gear recommendation for our listeners. Yeah, my most favorite specific item for seasons, I never go anywhere without it, is the Eddie Bauer Microtherm Storm Down Jacket. And it's a lightweight down jacket that you can really wear in summer evenings. And it's treated down so the down doesn't get wet, which is pretty amazing. Mm, interesting. How about give, give us another one? Do you have anything else? 
Yeah, so it's kind of the two things you'll never see me without is my down jacket and then also my Smith Optics sunglasses. I you always see me in sunglasses, much to the chagrin of photographers. But <laughs> Smith Optics does this amazing thing with their lenses. It's called Chroma Pop, and it makes everything much clearer and brighter. And it's really helpful when I'm looking up at a slope and I'm looking for that rock outcropping. And so I'm always wearing my Smith Optics. Yeah, the the Chroma Pop's neat. We had uh, Alex Johnson, a professional oh, cool. boulder on the show yeah. and she recommended the chroma pop lenses and smith provided us a pair and don't tell the fan that i gave these away to but i did try them on before i sent them to him and <laughs> it's basically awesome. like putting an instagram filter over your eyes yeah it's amazing it really is amazing and for this episode of Mountain Meister, Smith is offering another pair of Chroma Pop lenses. These are the Gibson design. Check those out on our website. It's under the Meister Deal section. All you need to do is share Melissa's episode on either Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Make sure you tag us in your post so we can see that you did it. And we will pick one person to win a pair of Smith sunglasses with the Chroma Pop slash Instagram filter lenses. A couple more topics before we let you go. Um, you know, you love climbing mountains and you do a ton of guiding too. You love taking other people up mountains. But in today's day and age, it just it is unbelievable how much peripheral stuff you need to do, whether you're writing the blogs or posting photos to the Facebook or to the Instagram. You have to do podcast interviews. <laughs> do you like doing this stuff? I do. I mean, I love sharing my adventures. And I think that's sort of an extension of guiding is getting to be a storyteller and help people to see sort of what I see and also to hear what other people see. And I think if there's any way that we can connect and engage on some level, because, you know, I do, I live a very, very independent life. I spend a lot of time alone or with the same groups of people. And it's easy to start to feel like you're different from everybody. Mm. And I, I don't feel like I'm different from everybody. And, you know, instead of having sort of the social platform to, to say, look at me, look at me, it's a great way for me to say, um, look at me and tell me about you. And it helps me to feel a little bit more engaged with people. So I love it. And it is definitely a full on matrix of how to make it all work because mountain guiding does not pay well. It's not like, you know, I'm never going to be a millionaire from this. I have amazing and really supportive sponsors that help to supplement that, but it's definitely a whole puzzle I have to always put together to make sure I can make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And then also you are your business, right? It's like you. So when you promote mm -hmm. yourself, you're like, you're literally promoting yourself. Do you ever feel really weird about doing that? Oh, all the time. It's so weird. It's just, it's so narcissistic. Yeah. And it's just, um, you know, I always joke because you can sort of continuously watch metrics. I'm really interested in what people like and what they don't like. I, <laughs> and I don't it's wanna, you. Like, I know. And it's about me. And I'm looking at that. And, you know, it's so sad because I'll do something that I love so much. And I think it's so amazing. I'll post it to social and like it'll get this very small response. And then I'll take a selfie and post it next. And it'll have this massive response. And I'm like, oh, this is heartbreaking. That <laughs> is too funny. Oh yeah. But you kind of separate yourself from it a little bit. You know, I think there's sort of some truth in like not believing the hype about yourself and just remembering that, you know, I am, I am who I am. And, um, I don't think I'm that different from, from very many people. And, and in fact, I think people have a 
hard time when they meet me believing. <laughs> I think they think I'm not telling the truth if I tell people what I really do for a living. <laughs> and, and usually I just tell people that I work at Starbucks. And, and nobody ever questions that, ever. <laughs> what? Wait, wait, time out. So, so you tell people that you work at Starbucks and mm-hmm. you get a much more realistic reaction than you say you yeah. climb mountains. Yeah, and and the one thing I'll say is I'll say, oh, you know, someone says, what do you do? And I'll say, oh, I work at Starbucks. And they'll say, oh, that's great. I love the coffee. I'm like, I actually don't even get to work with the coffee. I work in the office. And they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Nobody ever goes, really? That's, you know, that doesn't seem right. But if I say I'm a professional mountain guide, people go, you are? And they look me all the way up and all the way down. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know why that's so unbelievable. I am. I really am. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, what, 5'3", like, blonde. Yeah. But, but yes, I mean, I believe you. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's a true story. (laughs) Okay. Well, so you've climbed Everest five times. You've done a lot of other mountains. You're a quarter of a way to the moon. Um, You're really, oh, sorry, a quarter of a percent of the way to the moon. (laughs) Okay. That that sounds so much further away now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You've done this stuff so often. Has there ever been a time where you become complacent on the mountain? I mean, the stuff is still really risky no matter how much you do it. Yeah, you know, I think that for me, anything in my life that I've ever become complacent with, I've immediately stopped doing it. And so for me, climbing and, you know, working on Everest or climbing anywhere, I haven't had a a day or a minute where I felt complacent. I think it garners my full attention. And to me, that's sort of the, the measure in life of, am I doing the right thing? You know, once I get lazy and disengaged. I don't deserve to be there anymore. I need to move on and I need to challenge myself with something new and different. And that's how I've conducted myself since I was probably three years old. So it's a, it's a decent habit. I hope it's keeping me alive right now in a practical sense. But, um, you know, it also is really unpredictable. I don't know where my life's going to go in 10 years. I could, you know, be not climbing at all anymore. I, I think I will be, but you know, you just never do know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good attitude to have towards something that's so potentially dangerous. Um, so kudos to you. Um, <laughs> my last question, there are times where I am so surprised at how similar humans are. We talked about the human behavior and human nature a little bit before. And if you look at some of the decisions that we make, you can see that. I mean, everybody's motivated by incentives, things like that. But then there are other times where I'm shocked at how different humans are from each other at, at times. And this is a perfect example. Like, how are you climbing the biggest mountains in the world doing stuff that's so extreme and then there are other people like well the the average american is watching four hours of television a day why are you so different you know it's funny because again i i always tend to focus on our similarities more than our differences and there's many more similarities than differences but i think you know for me i just i i from a very young age i knew that my own success in life depended on me and and me only. You know, nobody was going to come and scoop me up and save me and do it for me if I wasn't going to do it myself. And so I had that attitude just as I became an adult. You know, I really knew that it, I had to, to make the life I wanted. And so I, I set out to do that. And I've been lucky enough to get to pursue that passionately and do something that I, I so love. But I think that, you know, when you when you really dig deep and you you push yourself into those places of discomfort, you learn a lot about yourself. 
And whether, you know, I think the average American wants that too. <laughs> and they want to learn about themselves too. And I think it's just finding that access point. And, you know, we talked about it being a little bit lucky to be able to get to the summit of the mountain. I think it's similar kind of luck, you know, that I just happened to turn my head at the exact right moment in life and look. And I saw something that inspired me so much. And then, and then I followed it. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain, obviously. No. There's many other forms of, of doing this. Melissa, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. I look forward to speaking with you after 10 Everest summits <laughs> in about 11 years from now. <laughs> Probably list. won't take that long. Oh, wow, okay. Well, if I'm already at five, that should only take me five more years. <laughs> anyway, for our listeners, you can find out more about Melissa at melissaarnett.com. You can also find highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. We will have links to everything we talked about. We'll have a really great quote from this episode. I'm not sure what it'll be yet, Melissa, but you've said something really good somewhere in here. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Ben. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into that episode with Melissa Arnott. I hope you enjoyed it. Today we talked a lot about human behavior and some other fun things. If there are any topics that you'd like to hear discussed, let me know. Shoot me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. Also, if there are any guests that you would want to hear from on the show, we'll do our best to get them too. Don't forget about the sunglasses giveaway. Just share Melissa's episode on either Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and tag us in your post. And you'll have a chance to win. Until next time, I am your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for tuning in to Mountain Meister.